Is. 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 Yeah, we're recording, Ronald. That already started. Yeah, so this, this podcast has officially begun. One of these days, we're going to get this straight where we don't start off the podcast like we were like a cowboy that's been transported to modern times and we yeah. don't know what recording is <laughs> and we're not sure what's that flashing. You're right. This is, that's what you call an aha moment. They call that in the industry an aha moment. When you realize that you're already recording a podcast that yep. you're on? For the seventy-first time, yeah. <laughs> welcome to episode seventy-one. Yeah, well, on that note, seventy-one. Here we are. This, this is a very special episode. Ronald and I—we did one of these last year for the for the a big event here in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, I've gone to for many years. Ronald has as well, and John, you know, over time mm-hmm. has also been a, a patron of the Maryland Film Festival. Uh, this past weekend, we were fortunate enough to to be able to go to a number of screenings, both together uh, as a group and also just independently, mm-hmm. just to kind of cover as many as we could. Yeah. A lot of different kinds of films, uh, obviously, are on display at the film festival. Mm-hmm. It used to, it used to only run three days, and it's really incredible that the festival over the years has really in, in, just increased in popularity and exposure. And also, I think nationally, it's, it actually gets a lot more attention than it ever did. Um, you can tell that usually just by looking at the films that that, that a festival can can have on their schedule. And this year, they didn't. They had no lack of uh, nationally known films you know that films that were at sundance south by southwest you know inter- even international film festivals and uh, we saw a few of them yeah, so. it's great to see those movies even though i didn't get to see even close to all of the films i wanted to see at this festival or, yeah but uh, several of the things that played were, were things that i had you know i've read about and i'd see you know read about the sundance screening read about the south by southwest screening and that kind of thing and it's just there's something kind of exciting about seeing them in that in that atmosphere where there's this sort of positive vibe about movies and i don't know it's that that can be so fun it's such a great way to see a lot of movies uh yeah. and and sometimes even the experience of seeing them at a festival almost overwhelms the quality of the film and we might we might get to a couple like that but um in general uh uh yeah i was really impressed by the offerings that they had this year yeah i mean you have documentaries there's comedies there's shorts there's um horror films you know drama i mean weird like fucking movies you yeah. know it's we were at a Q and A with Bobcat Goldthwait, like you know, we we saw his film Willow Creek this weekend, mm-hmm. and he he said like you know Baltimore, it's like a second home to him. You know, he's at every yeah. Maryland film festival, but he made a really cool comment, just basically saying that like weird is in the water in Baltimore, yeah, <laughs> and it really does. You can you can feel it. You know, if you look at the if you get a hand, your hands on or if you go to mdfilmfest.com and look at the program from this year, and just how many different movies, you know, kinds of film, it's it's impressive. Well, I love that he said that too because that audience was. I mean, there were people in their 60s, there were people in their 20s, and everything in between. Absolutely. And it's like, I, you know, I don't think, I think if we all sit around and pat ourselves on the back for being weird and unique, that's not a good thing. But it's nice to know, uh, it's just nice to know that, that someone of that nature would be drawn to exactly what is unique about uh, a city like Baltimore and sure. the, the kind of support of the community and the fact that there is there is this kind of acceptance of really eclectic things in this town. And it's like, I think that you really you really see that. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It was, and it's a blast yeah. every year. It was. I mean, and I love that it. It kind of starts, kicks off summer, and mm-hmm. it's at a good time where it's not too hot, not too cold, uh, and it's amazing to meet people that that have common interests. Yeah, and you like cross paths with people that you know you've seen around town before. <laughs> yeah, you, like I know you ran into some of your friends, Ronald, and fellow same, comedians. Same here, random you know? people. I, I ran into my sister. Yeah. I had no idea she was gonna be. You had there. no idea she was living here. <laughs> yeah, you guys aren't even on speaking terms. <laughs> But yeah, now this year though it was five days. You know, like yeah. every year it seems wow. to get longer and longer, which is great. And you know, I don't know, they're not going to really be able to go much further than that, um, unless they really are able to expand 
like the the venues that they use around town. But right. I mean, they use the historic Charles Theater for most of their screenings, and also at Micah and some other spaces around town. But which are like a mile or so apart, which is kind of an ordeal at times to get from one place to the other. Yeah. Oh yeah. But but it's 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 fun. It, it's it the city, the, you know. You figure it out. Yeah. Not that I'm a city person, but you know, <laughs> for that weekend, I can figure it out. <laughs> I think. I mean, I guess it started off, John. You actually. I think saw the first movie. Yeah, the movie that was kind of like an event oh, movie. Yeah, it kicked off the the first night. Um, it's a movie, Hit and Stay, uh, a documentary uh, directed by Skiz Sizik and Joe Tropea. Um, they're both sort of Baltimore fixtures. Skiz is a, a musician in a ton of bands, and he's always got a, a you know a handful of film projects going. And he was actually one of the program directors for the maryland film festival for about eight years and really helped kind of shepherd it into into existence um and he's done that you know i've he's been a projectionist and a and a jury member and uh you know part of the board on a on a number of film festivals uh so it was kind of uh i know that that skiz and joe were excited because the maryland film festival was the first time their their documentary played uh, for a local audience oh really um, yeah, prior wow. to that, they had been in. They they won the audience award in the Chicago Underground Film Festival. Wow! And they also had had a previous screening in Kansas, the Kansas City Film Festival, um, which I guess that's actually in Missouri, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but <laughs> but he said that the screening at the Maryland Film Festival was the first time was that was the first one where they like their color correction and the sound mix and everything else was in place. Um, and I you know it was definitely a really uh, a really a packed house. Um, it's a really interesting documentary. Um, it sort of uses the uh, story of the Catonsville Nine, uh, which were a, uh, a, a very famous uh, group of activists. It was in 1968. And the unique thing about what these protesters did was, well, two things. One is that uh, this was really one of the first times that a protest, an anti-war protest, uh, was conducted by people that weren't sort of part of the youth culture. And so rather than hippies protesting the war, it was, you know, Catholic priests and former nuns and wow. basically devout religious people that had a very uh, Christ-like objection to the idea of, you know, your country sending you to kill people. Um, and so the way they struck out against the draft was to go to uh, basically the the, uh, the offices where the draft cards were being held, and uh, they brought the boxes of them out into the parking lot outside this uh, location, and they they used ho- homemade napalm, uh, <laughs> threw it on the uh, threw it on the, the the files, and then set it aflame, which nowadays kind of seems like well they could just go to the backup, right? Those draft cards weren't the only copy, but of course in 1968 those were the only copies. Wow! So the, it really the government really had no way of of you know people would have to basically kind of volunteer. Uh, to be put back in the running. Uh, so at that point, it was a, it was a protest that was both a symbolic gesture and something that you know actually affected the the government's ability to track down some of these people that that might have been sent to Vietnam. Um, you know, rather than continue to talk about it myself, I'll just I had the privilege of having Skiz come over to the house and we talked for a bit about about Hit and Stay and the Maryland Film Festival. Um, so I suppose now would be the time to hear that. Ronald and Steve, you guys can just sit back and enjoy the the leisure time this affords you. Nice. (laughs) Thanks. Here they come again. Mm -hmm. Joe Tropea was working on a dissertation 
correct? It originated as a dissertation? Master's, you know, I'm not really sure. My mm-hmm. education doesn't you know, let me know what the meanings of those big words. And then at some point it was turned into an article for, was it the city paper, the Baltimore city paper? Right, which ran it as uh, to gearing up for the 40th anniversary of the Catonsville Nine. So at what point did it become a movie? Uh, around 2007, uh, I guess when Joe was writing uh, what what became known as Hit and Stay, that was the name of the article in the city paper. But as he was researching it, uh, I had made a comment to him that some of these people are going to start dying off soon. Don't just record them with an audio recorder, record them with a video camera because that footage will become very valuable to some documentary filmmaker down the road. Mm-hmm. And that ended up with uh, him roping me in to go videotape the interviews. And he roped in Scott Braid and J.R. Fritch. You know, I wasn't the only one. Um, But I think after a few interviews, uh, he was liking how the footage was looking. He was liking how the interviews were going. He decided that he wanted to make that documentary. And originally he asked me if I wanted to be involved. And I, I said, no, I've got too many other projects. I just don't have the time. But I kept helping him out. And when he asked me again, I, I thought about it. I was like, yeah, I'm getting more work done on his film than my own. So I should probably just go ahead and be a partner on this film with him. <laughs> it, Joe was the producer. He did all the research. He did conducted all the interviews. Uh, we co-wrote and directed it. And then I did most of the, the shooting and the editing. And that's, that's how it broke down. How important do you think it was that these were devout Catholics and not, you know, unwashed hippies? If you're... Uh, if you're a middle-aged person and you're sitting home watching the TV and you see, you know, a scruffy-haired college-age kid yeah. protesting the draft, you're going to be like, oh, of course he doesn't want to get drafted. But if you see a middle-aged priest saying there's something wrong with this war and we need to stand up and start paying attention to it and see what we can do to, to stop it, that's going to that's gonna have more clout. That's going to, you know, make a bigger impact, I think. Did you find anything specific about the... The process of accruing information versus, you know, following a subject around uh, to get footage. All right. I, I had the easy way out on this one because Joe did most of that work. He, mm-hmm. he found the subjects. Actually, I, that's not even fair to say. Joe did all that work. He found <laughs> he found all the subjects. He decided who, who we would interview. He actually arranged when and where we would interview them, and he came up with all the questions and did all, all the research about these people. I just had to ride along with him and, and shoot it. Um, so I was learning a lot of this as it as we were going. I, I my creative input didn't really uh, jump into full full throttle until the editing, mm-hmm. which I'm kind of glad because I I got to this the story sort of unfolded for me as we were shooting it. I I did not really fully understand all the subject matter at the time or who these different people were and how they related to each other, but once we were all done shooting, I sifted through all those interviews and was able to start putting things together. And, and I was having a lot of aha moments that Joe probably had already had. Uh, so it was really, I mean, it was amazing editing this thing because I, I got so excited. Like, wow, this is a really great story. You know, mm-hmm. in the way that something that happened in this action connects to something that happens in that action later on. You know, cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is storytelling. Was it really that direct of a line between this event and the events that followed it? Or was it just something that was kind of bubbling up all no, over? No, it was direct. I mean, the one thing uh, we sort of draw attention to is it wasn't the first of these actions. In the film, we, we talk about the Baltimore Four. There was also one before that where somebody poured feces on draft files. Mm-hmm. But the Dave Clark Five? Yeah. <laughs> that would have been a good one. Um, but what made the Catonsville Nine 
the, the big one that it was, the one that got so much attention, is that the Baltimore Four had already happened, and that had put Phil Berrigan into the news. And his brother Dan was a pretty famous poet, and they were both priests. So now you have two brothers, they're priests, one of them's a famous poet, one of them is already a famous activist, and they pull off this much bigger action. And that's what got got that action so much more attention. And then the fact that immediately after the action, George Mishy and some of the other members of the Nine, it was their goal to keep it going, to make sure that that wasn't the last action, that there were plenty more. We have one guy in the film that actually says, you know, George Mishy in particular decided that every time there's a trial, organize another action, at least one other action. Mm-hmm. A lot of the actions are connected. Some of them aren't. There was one great quote that I wish we could have put in the film where somebody said, there's a reason you never hear about the Texas Five. It's because they wouldn't have gotten out alive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that they wouldn't have survived. In California, somebody explained that uh, the jail time for one of these actions would have been far more severe than it was, you know, on the East Coast. Like, I want to say 20 years or something like mm-hmm. versus, you know, one or two years. And so... You know, a 20-year-old is less likely to want to spend 20 years in jail than a 20-year-old would would be to spend two years in jail. Uh, you know, that notion of the goal being to get arrested, that kind of seems now like the, 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 the point, that's the default setting for a lot of protesting, is that, you know, that if you're going to do whatever you're doing until the cops show up and bust everything up, because it's almost like the visual of seeing this system crack down on it is part of what will hopefully tug at people's hearts and minds. And the whole reason back then for getting arrested was not just to take responsibility, you know, to say, hey, we really mean this and we're going to take responsibility. It was to take it to trial because they knew that both the arrest and the trial would get lots of publicity. And at the trial, they would get to say a lot of things that are on their mind. Like they say in the film, they were they were putting the war on trial. You know, another action was putting the FBI on trial. They were able to get things off their chest and into the public record. In a, in a way that I don't think people can really do today, or I don't think they can try to do it, but I'm not so sure it holds as much weight as it did 45 years ago. Did you see any any sense to the sort of opposition? Like, was there any anything that didn't really make it into the movie that 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 would have that would have sort of humanized the the other side at all? We did try to put in most of what we had. I can't think of anything that, that we left out, but, you know, we have the prosecutor for the Baltimore Four and the Cadenceville Nine. We have the uh, retired FBI agents who uh, sh- tried to shut down a few other actions. Like, I really wanted to make sure that we had the opposing view in there because I hate watching a documentary and it only tells one side. And, it, and if it's not my side and I don't hear my side represented, I feel like, oh, they didn't get everything that they yeah. should have. Um but it, was, it also shows a certain insecurity about your idea. Right, it's propaganda. You start to realize, yeah. wait, this is this person is is avoiding mentioning anything that might chip away at their their case. Right, and I, we were we wanted to put as much of that, not as much of that as possible, because it, there wouldn't have been enough room for everything else we wanted. <laughs> but you know, we put as much as we had. I don't think there was much that we left out uh, that we had, and and it wasn't really uh, easy to find. I mean, Joe Joe found the people that are in the film, but. We had put the word out, uh, like when we did our Kickstarter campaign, uh, uh, WBAL did a story on us and put it on their website. And part of the story was, hey, if anybody would like to talk about this, you know, the Cadenceville Nine, get in t- contact with us because we'd like to talk to you and maybe put you in the film. 
And I don't think we got anybody contacting us from that story. But there were comments left on that page on the WBAL site wishing Joe and I death <laughs> for, for shining a light on the Catonsville Nine. And I saw, you know, as, as the Maryland Film Festival was coming up and people were posting about the film on Facebook, I, I saw friends of friends leaving comments about, you know, these people are cowards. You know, the true heroes are the troops, you know, and, you know, we shouldn't be glorifying these cowards and you know i wish those people would have come forward so we could have put them in the film you know because that's an interesting i mean i don't agree with these people for one thing i don't think what they did is cowardly i think it's pretty brave to break into a draft board and risk jail time and second a lot of the people that did this had already done their time in the military it wasn't like they were anti-military or anti-soldiers uh, you know, and it wasn't like they were trying to get out of the draft. They weren't, they were too old to be drafted, but they had already been in it. And some of them had fought in wars. How important do you think it is that people sort of be politically aligned with the movie in order to see it and enjoy it? Uh, I'd, I'd like to hope that they don't have to be politically aligned with it. I mean, I, I have some relatives who uh, I know disagree with me politically. I, I'm anxious for them to see it because I'd like to hear what they have to say. So far, I, I can only think of one person that I've talked to after a screening who uh, kind of gave me the hint that he's more leaning to the left or leaning to the right, sorry. Mm-hmm. And and he loved it. You know, he, he found it very moving. And, you know, I, I'm anxious to see what more religious people feel like, like, because there is discussion of religion in it and how the religion is part of what made these people decide to do what they did. Um, so yeah, I'm really, I'm hoping to hear what the, the audiences that are harder for us to reach. Cause they're not mm-hmm. the kind of audiences that go to film festivals and that's yeah. where we're screening the film. Were there any movies, uh, at the, at the Maryland film festival this last weekend that, that really stood out to you? Anything that just blew you away or that you really love to see? Uh, I loved zero charisma. Um, just a very funny. I really wanted to make it down for that one, but I couldn't. But it looked it looked great. I, I loved. It was so clever uh, and so original. And I love that the filmmakers said they made it on a mumblecore budget, mm-hmm. which was but just people a, are enunciating, right? Right. Okay. It, it was just a great way to 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 put it mm-hmm. because they did so much with so little. I saw Good Old Frida, mm-hmm. a documentary about the Beatles' secretary. Yeah, it was really interesting. I am Divine, the documentary about Divine. Oh yeah. Fantastic. I mean, just, uh, I thought they did a great job. You know, Divine, what a, you don't get much more of a colorful character than Divine. And <laughs> that film did a great job of, of explaining who Divine was. Um, I saw Pit Stop, which mm-hmm. I really enjoyed. Very good film. Uh, as was White Reindeer, which I not only gave money to their <laughs> their fundraising campaign, I'm also an extra in it. So there's <laughs> a nice shot of me in a strip club. But I loved the film. It was a, a very odd Christmas movie. Okay. Know, certainly not uh, not a necessarily uplifting, but a lot of fun, nevertheless. It, a very uh, – well, I, I love that filmmaker's previous work, uh, Zach Clark and, and Melody Sisk, his producer, who tends to also be in his films. Uh, I just like their sensibility. They're, they have – a dry sense of humor that is almost scary. (laughs) So I was really looking forward to seeing that. And it definitely, uh, it was worth the wait. Did you see Willow Creek? I did. What did you think of Willow Creek? Uh, I was mixed on it. Yeah. Um, 
uh, Bobcat's intros and Q and A's. No, his Q and A was great. Even if you don't like the film, it's worth going to the screening just for the Q and A because he's he's and you know I love having him at the festival. Yeah, he's such a nice guy. He's so friendly and and the fact that he seems to notice something about the Maryland Film Festival that's kind of unique. Yeah, I mean he he's right. Baltimore's different. Mm-hmm. I mean I, I go to a lot of other festivals. And yeah, Q and A's can get really boring and usually last a little longer than they should. And you know, you don't always have John Waters sitting in the audience. In fact, you rarely have John Waters sitting in the audience asking a question, and you don't always have a Bobcat Goldthwaite answering the questions. Yeah. And so that's one experience that that Maryland has been able to to provide over and over again. Yeah, you know, for several years now that most festivals don't have. You, you were program manager for eight years. Uh, nine festivals. Nine festivals. Wow. And uh, you know, a lot of the lot of the things about the festival. Uh, like Dan Krovich and I, Dan was the other programmer for six of those years. Like there are things that we created that shaped the festival that are still being done. That's kind of heartwarming to mm-hmm. feel like, oh, we made a little difference in this this festival. But the fact that the filmmakers come and they have a great time and then they go to other festivals and they're telling other filmmakers, if you want a really good time, get into the Maryland Film Festival. And I've had filmmakers tell me that without even knowing that I'm from Maryland and that I had worked for the festival. And, you know, when, when I hear stuff like that, it's, it's like, yeah, cool. We, we're doing something right here. And, uh, and now I'm, now I get to attend the festival as a filmmaker and, and have that good time. I don't get to stay in the hotel where all the parties are, but, <laughs> you know, but I hear about them and it sounds like great parties. I, I just went to the Nashville Film Festival, which is one of the best organized and best program festivals I've ever been to. But the problem was, is I was there for five days and I basically saw the hotel and the theater mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm in Nashville yeah. and I'm thinking, man, I, I should be seeing more of Nashville. I mean, I'm not complaining because I saw some great films and I had a great time, but it, it, it's true. Like when you go to a town, like you're not just going to watch films, you're going to that town mm-hmm. and you need to experience that town. And I know at Maryland, I, I don't know if we still do it, uh, but the, Cal Ripken used to give us a whole bunch of tickets to Orioles games, I think in his private box. And the filmmakers would get to go have that experience. And John Waters would take a van load of filmmakers on a, a, a bar crawl, you know, to some of his favorite dives. You know, you're only going to get to do that in Baltimore. Yeah. You know, you can go to other fil- film festivals and they might have something similar to that, but it's not going to be Cal Ripken and it's not going to be John Waters. So... Yeah, I, I wish I could go on those trips. <laughs> you know, I haven't done either of them yet, but they sound like fun. If anyone's interested in the film, go to our website, www.hitandstay.com. Uh, you can also like us on Facebook, and that's how you can find out if we're going to screen in your town. And if you want us to screen in your town, find who books films in your town. If there's a film festival or if there's an independent art house or student group or whatever, Approach them, tell them about the film, and have them get in touch with us. Thanks, Giz. Thanks for having me. Here they come again. And wasn't that great? <laughs> I should <laughs> so full, insightful. Yeah, full, full disclosure. Stephen Ronald didn't just hear it. We just took a few seconds pause from when I said we're about to listen to the clip. <laughs> yeah. But I'm sure Ronald. Well, I will Steve, surely download this on Friday. Right. Absolutely. To it. I'm, I'm sure you guys will enjoy the interview with Skiz mm-hmm. when you hear it. Um, but yeah, that was uh, that was all about hit and stay. Cool. Next, the next film that we saw at the festival this year, Ron and I were actually in attendance later that night. That John saw hit and stay was Joe Swanberg's new film. Excuse me, Drinking Buddies, 
which uh, premiered this year at the South by Southwest Festival, not even two months ago. So again, something really fresh, a movie that hasn't been seen by a lot of people and has gotten pretty good feedback, pretty good reviews. It's been picked up by Magnolia Pictures, uh, who also distributed VHS, which was a film that he was at the festival festival for last year. Um, he did a Q&A. But the film itself, actually, I think is probably one of his most accessible films. I mean, like, he's part of that whole mumblecore mumble shift, which I'm not a... I don't know that I could say I'm a huge fan of, but I don't know that I either... I don't know that I dislike it either. You know, like, some of the movies, like, Han Takes the Stairs, I remember he was at the festival with, and yeah. I was like, eh, on. But um, I definitely... I mean, personally, I know that I'm more a fan of a little more mainstream type of indie films, a little more accessible things maybe right. that aren't so... I guess out there or so independent, you know, you know that they, they they carry that badge of super hip or whatever you want to call it. But well, it's kind of fun. I mean, that's that's one thing that film festivals are good. At. They don't have to all be movies you can only see at a film festival. Exactly. Sometimes it's just yeah. a small film. You totally. Know? And that that's kind of where I'm going. I I felt like Drinking Buddies was that. And I think, I mean, you know, this is a movie that uh, let's see, Jake Johnson is in, who who most people would probably know as Nick from New Girl, um, the the comedy with Zoe Deschanel. Olivia Wilde is also in the film. Uh, Anna Kendrick and Ron Livingston. Ron Livingston, correct. Office um, Space. Um, Ty West, the director. Yeah, your boy's in it, John. Uh, <laughs> how was he? I wanted to ask. <laughs> yeah, see, he's, he's okay for his yeah. role. He's supposed to be a dick. You, did you tell him? Him. Did you tell him that we're not on speaking terms anymore? <laughs> <laughs> like, you got to talk to John. He's yeah. really upset with the last couple of things yeah. you've done. Don't do any more anthologies. I gave your number. I don't yeah. know, but um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I I actually I I love Drinking Buddies. I thought, I thought it was, it was great. great. Um, yeah. the crowd was really into it. It's it's a really cool film because it examines. Um, you basically have these two couples. You know, you have Jake John. Johnson um, and Anna Kendrick are, are a couple who basically they're engaged. You, you kind of find out throughout the film, you know, they've been engaged for a while. Um, but he all works at a local brewery with Olivia Wilde, um, and you know they they're really close friends. You know, they're friends that you know that there probably could be something more, um, where they're just so comfortable around one another. They're they're so f- like I want to say air quotes flirtatious. You know, I think it's just they're so naturally just friends. You know, like yeah. you know. But you know that there could be something more, and and I think that's what the movie is about. You know, it's about acknowledging, you know, when there's something more than a friendship, especially in a situation where he's engaged to somebody who is also a pretty great person yeah. for for most for, for, for in most <laughs> cases. There, yeah. There's something that happens in the movie that makes you yeah. kind of question some of that. But it's it's an interesting dynamic. I mean, mostly because like you know you get to that point where you you want to settle down with somebody, and then you you have a friend that is attractive. <laughs> hilarious you get along with them you can joke around with them and you know just kind of figuring out what's more important like the the dynamic of your friendship maybe turning it into something else can two attractive people function with each other and and be friends and not have it when there is an attraction when there is an attraction and have it leak into kind of weirdness and and it's it's done in a way that i had i hadn't seen before in a movie honestly or had hadn't seen done this well. Yeah, because it, it doesn't it doesn't sugarcoat a lot of it. You know, it doesn't right. wrap it up in a nice little bow either. You know, in the way that the film, uh, you know, the way the movie ends. But it it kind of forces it upon the two characters in in the course of basically a weekend when they're when they're left alone. Yeah. Um, and you know they're helping one another out with a move and things like that, and and things just kind of escalate. But really well done. I mean, I think it's I mean absolutely in my opinion his best movie. I mean, I think. Yeah. 
you know, in the Q and A, um, we we weren't able to get any footage of, of the Q and A because we were a little further away from the from the front of the theater. But he was asked that multiple times by people in the audience. You know, just about, you know, was this a conscious effort for you to be, you know, to have more of a a mainstream film? Like, is this an evolution of that you're going through? And mm-hmm. he and he kind of like acknowledged all that and embraced it. He's like, you know, honestly. You know, oh, a cool note that we found out, like, the whole movie is pretty much improv. Yeah. You know, he said he he did, he had a, a an outline of, I don't forget what number he said, it was like 40 pages or four, yeah. it was like 30 or 40 pages of an outline. And if you know anything about script writing, it's it's a page a minute. So, like, yeah. he has 40 of those. Yeah. Hour and a half movie. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's it's a lot of improv. And, and he just kind of noted that, like, this was the first movie that, like, he had a crew and he had, yeah. like, a crew of, like, 40 people, or you know, and, and he usually works with, like, two or something yeah. like that. You know what I mean? So it was kind of cool to... It was interesting to see, because you could feel it watching it, you know? It's, it's, a, it's a movie that had something behind it, you know? And... Uh, and I don't think he shied away from it at all, which yeah. was which was really cool because I feel like some people give him shit for the Momocore <laughs> thing, and I know you guys are telling me about like the boxing match that he had or the fight he had. Yeah, but I mean, like, it's, it, I think it's really yeah. Basically, cool. a, a, a critic, uh, Devin Faraci, who's actually a pretty pretty uh, pretty interesting critic. I mean, he writes, you know, about a, a wide range of films, and mm-hmm. and. I think writes really intelligently about a lot of things surrounding film, but basically he has an axe to grind with Mumblecore, and I think Joe Swanberg challenged him. I don't think that the critic took on the filmmaker, but the filmmaker took on the critic. Right. And I guess maybe you should just say, let's give the critic credit for for doing it, you <laughs> for, know, for, for showing yeah, up. like for, for, a... for potentially embarrassing himself. And yeah. then uh, from what I hear, he got he got thrashed pretty summarily, pretty but but he kept getting up. He He's kept, significantly he kept fighting. bigger than him. He's yeah. like Joe's like. Six four. Mm-hmm. Six, he's taller, yeah. He's six he's four, guy. six five. So like, this guy's like five eight, five nine. Yeah, but either way, Mumblecore. Mumblecore is very is very <laughs> controversial in that sense. And I think the one thing that's uh, you know not having seen the film, the one thing that Mumblecore is good for in my mind. I mean, the one thing that's that is 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 an interesting part of that genre or that subgenre yeah. is that it seems to be it seems to set you up. To, to capture maybe some kind of real moments. So oh, if you take the kind yeah, of story yeah. you're talking about, like a romantic comedy or something that could be in that zone of like a mainstream kind of will, will they or won't they movie, and you add to it that verisimilitude, I think that in and of itself is kind of a, a fresh thing to see. You know, yeah. a slightly more realistic movie about relationships is always welcome. Yeah, I guess I guess to give some sort of clarity about what makes this a little more mainstream than the other one is that um, it had some things that mainstream movies have, like sweeping shots. And and explosions. Ex- <laughs> like wide shots. And, cyborgs. Yeah, cyborgs and CGI. But some yeah, really cool tracking shots, tracking like shots riding and your bike like down the road. And, and that's that's like, like the complete one opposite shot. of what cool. a lot of mumblecore stuff. But yeah, what I was getting at was just that it, it, I liked I liked hearing him embrace it. Yeah. You know, I liked you know him acknowledging Olivia Wilde works on this movie and she works on huge films and she comes and basically works for nothing. Mm-hmm. Jason Sudeikis was in it too. Yeah. yeah, Jason Sudeikis has a small role in it. Um, who is her fiance in real life? Um, mm. Mm. Uh, a whole other conversation. But I don't know. I, I thought the movie was great. That's for movie after dark. Yeah, right. I hope it finds. I hope it finds. You know, I know Magnolia is releasing it. They'll do like the video on demand thing later this summer. They mentioned they didn't say a date at our mm-hmm. screening, but. Um, Olivia Wilde was, is great in the movie. I mean, she I is. think hands down, probably her best. I mean, I don't. She hasn't been in anything amazing. I loved her on this TV show called The Black Donnellys that no one ever saw. Mm-hmm. But like, she, I think is probably be- her best, her best movie. I mean, she's great in it. She's like that friend that like you know you have or had, and a lot of guys have had. That's like the friend that's like almost like your buddy that you feel you know so close to that you're like, are, are we just friends? You know, yeah. it's like, 
And it's know. some really cool, awkward moments, too, that, you know, I feel like some people can relate to. But uh, Drinking Buddy, I thought it was awesome. Very yeah. good. You should see it. if you When you get a chance to, if it's when it goes on video on demand, you should see it. Now, there's a movie that I really wanted to see, but I know you guys saw and really liked. Download it. Download it. <laughs> Download it. Um, Which everyone who saw it seemed to really dig, you know? Yeah, I mean... That wasn't even on my radar. Like, I didn't know anything about it before this festival popped up. But then when I realized what it was about, um, you know, it's basically about the sort of rise and fall and metamorphosis <coughs> of, of Napster in the, yeah. in the early days of the, the sort of free downloading craze. Yeah, done by director Alex, Alex Winter, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Uh, didn't he do Lost Boys, too? Yeah, he, he was in Lost- it. He he's was, in he it was too? In, yeah, well, he, he, didn't no, he's in it. he didn't direct it. He's right. one of the he's he one didn't of the vampires. Either of the Bill and Ted movies. <laughs> he did? <laughs> no. no. What? No, dude. He's just in them. He's Bill S. Preston. Oh. He may have had a hand in the screenplays. I, I think that he had a lot. I mean, or at least I maybe he had something to do in with the years it. since. Yeah. I think this is what I'm thinking of. Is that in the years since he's been a driving force behind like, you know, efforts to get uh, okay. another movie going. That's but, what yeah. it is. Yeah, but this this movie was basically about what the two thousand eight through uh, almost present day and you mean 98 98 i'm so sorry 98 I, it's weird to say 98 now and and, and being in 2000 it, it i i agree so I weird i'm sorry sometimes it sounds so long ago it, it does. does it freaks me time. out watching that movie and seeing the, like the dates on the screen and yeah being like, oh my god like i'm totally well, i'll totally in school watching this or mm-hmm. you know it's like fuck you just old. talks about how um the the how napster came to be kind of the the whole situation where a couple people met in the IRC chat chat room, and if you had IR, if you used IRC as a as a younger person, that was pretty much the way that you got files and and chatted with people. There were those; these were chat rooms that you kind of had to talk about culture and life, and and uh, a couple people met and started Napster. Which now, I, the thing that's really interesting too is how this, how watching this. Is very different than watching something from fifty years ago because this is most of our lives. If you if you're if you're pretty much a computer user around this time and pretty knowledgeable, most of you were using Napster at that time. Mm-hmm. And to kind of see how it how it became what it was and how huge it came in a culture that surrounded it and how the culture how it it changed the way we deal with music now how. People basically refuse to pay for music now as as a result of this sort of floodgate opening and what it did to the industry, how it affects it, what it how it will affect it in the future almost forever. It, it's right. it's like the yeah, shot I mean, it's heard true. around the world. It's like true it's, that it has changed the way that people <clears throat> view just the idea of paying for music. Yeah. It's like that now it's almost Any, like a choice you make. For anything now, anything yeah. anything that you can't like the tangible things you can you can get now like like you can get a car like you can't replicate that you can't bootleg that but anything else three-dimensional printers man (laughs) right 3d printers are coming along but um i call them (laughs) three-dimensional three-dimensional yeah i don't like abbreviations (laughs) right i I think i'm gonna try to 3d print um a lady Olivia Wilde. Lady. Olivia Wilde. <laughs> I think that was called weird science. <laughs> yeah, get out where they look. But I, you know, uh, I, I'm I'm laying down money right now that the <clears throat> remake of Weird Science involves some kind of 3D printing reference. Really? Yeah, that'd yeah. be interesting because they're working on it. I now. think that's good money. You know, oh, it's going to be topical. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Just to add to what Ronald said, I, 
I, I definitely was really excited for this film. And, mm. and, and, and not that it has anything to do with Zero Dark Thirty, but I had a feeling when I left the movie with this kind of what Ron was just alluding to, of, of watching something that took place very recently to me, you know, and, and, and having reference points that I knew what was going on in my life when mm-hmm. that was happening and, and how it affected me, you know, and how it affected my friends and whatever. And it was really interesting to watch that because, I mean, I was super super into Napster and, and IRC and I mean every offshoot of Napster that came once they got shut down um, and, and, and the, the cool thing about this movie I had a desk job where what not much was expected of me and we had a T1 so <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I was one connection I was, I was you know pretty friendly Tearing with Napster you were that guy yeah. that I'd see a song and I'm like T1 <laughs> yes I'm getting it in two seconds no, I was that guy too who had spent years like hunting down certain records in record shops and, mm-hmm. and finding out you can special order this but it's going to take us eight weeks to get it or something like that <laughs> mm-hmm. and so then you know like I was fascinated with that aspect of Napster when it hit so to me yeah that period even though I still try to pay for music whenever I can, there are still those things that, like, you know, you just want to check it out. I don't know. It, totally. yeah. It's it's hard to remember that there was a time before that when you had to sort of go to the record store and hope that they had, like, a listening station, you know? Yeah. The culture of how you consume music. It's like music became more worthless, but also more ubiquitous because yeah. of Napster, you know? It's it's kind of unfortunate. I mean, and, and the, the, like, I guess the something recent that happened... Um, Daft Punk's album leaked already, and it comes out in a week or so, two weeks or so, and it's just weird to see how how that stuff hap- that stuff circulates. It gets in one place, it multiplies. I see fifty links for it now. It's it's insane that just the fact that something can kind of drop on the internet and then multiply in in minutes. Be distributed through Twitter. Be distributed through Facebook. Well, now it's like a it's it's blown apart. It's, like it's, yeah, it's, but I mean, and actually, that's one of that's watching the film. That that's really what was probably the start of the downfall of Napster. Which yeah. you talk about a leak. It was when the song from I think it was one of the Mission Impossible movies from the Metallica song yeah. leaked. It wasn't even out yet. There was like a radio cut of it. Is that why Lars Ulrich was always so pissed off? Yeah, about I think Napster? so. That yeah, was the beginnings of that yeah, relationship. That, yeah. And that that's what put Napster on the radar. You know what I mean? But the movie itself is incredible. It was produced by you know it was produced in conjunction with VH1 Rock Docs, and uh, you know I was I was able to get get a lot of footage from the Q and A, and I know John's going to drop some of this in in post production. But um, he talked a lot of Alex Winter talked a lot about. The relationship with VH1, the budget that they gave him, which I think he said was like just just under a million dollars, and that this movie basically started over ten years ago. Well, I mean, it's really important. But the movie, you know, obviously can't answer all of the questions about piracy and streaming. Um, You know, it's really an invitation to go get educated, and I don't mean that in a patronizing way. I mean, it's really complicated what's going on. And it's kind of incumbent upon all of us to understand what's going on. That goes for the record industry, the movie industry, the tech industry, the, the entrepreneurs, you, me. You know, I just showed this to a bunch of high school kids in, at the Tor- Festival of Toronto. And, you know, I was like, who downloads? And they all raise their hand. I got kids. They all download. So, you know, I think it's important to understand the difference. We all download. So does that make us pirates? The reality of it is, is that streaming isn't piracy. Streaming is actually the technology by which we all get our media now and have for quite some time, and that's the reality in which we are living, right? So we need to understand how the mechanics of that work, because it's no longer a question of, of when, it's a question of how. And for me, the how is how do we pay the artists? I really don't care about the rest of it. 
Um, you know, the monetizing companies will figure out how to monetize. The question is, how do we have this new wave of technology that doesn't leave artists out in the cold? I think it's, it's, it's a low-budget doc. You know, I, I pitched this to VH1. That's uh, the Rock Docs division. There are amazing people, and they paid for it. And now we, you know, we're selling it out to other parties in distribution. But it was under a million bucks, and uh, it was important for me because this is my first documentary. Um, uh, this might sound really counterintuitive to not use a documentary editor. Um, I wanted a, an editor that cut a lot of really great narrative because the Napster story is kind of inherently classical as a narrative and I, I really wanted it to feel and run like a narrative. Um, so Jacob Craycroft who cut this cut Prairie Home Companion for Bob Altman, he cut a lot of great narrative movies and, that I really liked and, um, and we had fun because neither of us had the slightest idea what we were doing. It was awesome. Like, do you know how to do that? No. You know? No. All right, let's go. Let's have fun. Yeah. You, you, you've mentioned it a couple of times, but what it, what is the plan in terms of release for this? Like, what way, how can people see this after this? Um, it's, uh, you know, obviously digital was of primary importance to me. Um, festival run was very important. So we did it. We're doing a festival run now. We're going to do a very small theatrical release um, that is primarily to lead us into a digital release that will be iTunes and cable VOD. Um, and then we made a deal with a partner. Uh, that is going to be taking this thing very wide in the streaming space in September, more around when schools are coming back, because the sort of educational component is an important one, I think, for me. So, uh, and that's a really great deal. I was really happy with their, their great partners, and um, it will be a very broad streaming release that will have a lot of, hopefully, a lot of marketing push behind it. Um, I was a big Napster user. I was big in technology, you know, as a layman. Um, so for me, Napster was this explosive social community. That was the first thing that I responded to with it because it was dial-up, age, everything was slow, IRC and BBSs and news groups, various forms of social community on the, online in those days were broken pains in the butt. Um, and then suddenly Napster, you were, I, had a, you know, I had friends in Finland, Japan, Russia, Germany, you know, and we were like in each other's hard drives in real time. It's really hard to describe that experience. There's nothing like it today. Nothing like Napster exists anymore. It's gone. Um, so from a community standpoint, I was really blown away and I met Fanning and talked to him about Napster from that perspective. So we hit it off because that turned out to really be his vision for it. And he was just happy to talk to someone who didn't want to talk about how I could get the Madonna album, you know, two weeks before it came out. <laughs> um, so uh, I really came at it um, from the standpoint of seeing it as a huge cultural and youth re revolt at that time. Um, and that was my way into the story. It was really was a youth revolt story. Um, once I met Fanning and realized how extraordinary he was, um, I sort of made it more about his experience. My narrative is all about Fanning's experience through this process. The movie is sort of almost back to my original vision, which is more the more global socio-political aspects. Uh, the short answer is no, there's no great model for paying artists that exists yet, in my opinion. Um, in some ways, we're going backwards and we're getting worse um, than the, the, the ugliest days of the record industry at their worst um, in the digital space. You know, in other words, the new bosses are, are in some ways in danger of being much worse than the old bosses. Right? That's what scares me about where we're headed um, for all kinds of artists, people like me, musicians, all kinds of people. Like this gentleman was talking about, there's, there is a lot of destruction in the wake of these evolutionary changes, right? 
Um, that being said, I think that there's a lot of people trying to figure out good ways to go forward. And I'm kind of Pollyanna-ish. I think that we're going to live in a world, in a new world, much like today's world. There's going to be good stuff and bad stuff. Uh, there's going to be artists getting screwed. There's going to be artists figuring out how to really utilize these new technologies. I think the radio heads of the world are the most rarefied. Um, I don't think that's a model that's sustainable for most artists. I feel the same way about, you know, certain artists, um, you know, like Amanda Palmer, who I think are brilliant and are doing amazing things, but it's really idiosyncratic to succeed on that level. And it's, it's almost, not disingenuous, I think those people are really great artists, but it's, I think it's a misnomer to assume that the vast majority of people could take on a Radiohead or a Amanda Palmer model and make 30 cents, much less $2 million. So um, I think that end of, of sort of self-proud source funding is extremely rarefied and will always be very rarefied and will mostly be failure and very seldomly will be success. I think we have to find a way to monetize going forward that works for your average working musician, filmmaker, writer, or whatever. <coughs> Yes, have I stunned you into silence? <laughs> <laughs> My job is done. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming out. Some really interesting, interesting stuff comes out of this film that I never knew that I find completely incredible. Like, you know, basically that most of the guys that worked on the servers and the coding for Napster, when Napster was shutting down or about to get shut down in the 2001, 2002 area, um, had had jumped ship and Apple had basically like hired a lot of these guys yeah. and they, a lot of these guys were involved in writing iTunes you know being a part of what came out in 2001 2002 as iTunes and it's incredible that's, that's crazy too to think that that was you know just a little over a decade ago right. I mean it's like you can make it seem like a long time but you can also make it seem like it was just yesterday and it's uh -huh. hard to believe that iTunes you know 2002 sounds pretty recent even though it's 11 yeah. years ago but yeah. Uh, but yeah that's crazy to think that there was a time when that was and do you remember how sort of strange it seemed at first that there was this application like i remember yep. using it to like digitize yeah. uh my cds i remember using it to convert you know things into mp3 for my for my enjoyment i don't know when i got an ipod but that's just crazy to think that that was you know <laughs> just a little over 10 years ago that was not even you didn't even wish you could carry your whole collection on your hip you just yep. kind of you just kind of dealt with what you had yeah you lug those cds around in the car mm -hmm. <laughs> if you had a, if you even had a cd player in your car and you know, if you went on a trip, you'd have to take. It's it's a weird thing too to think about. Um, I had a friend that uh, was a DJ, um, when I was in high school, and he would have to lug crate after crate after crate. He'd have to have crates in the back seat, crates in the front, crates in the trunk. Now he just carries around a hard drive and his MacBook Pro, mm -hmm. and that's it. It's it's a scary thing, man. Yeah, it's it's an incredible film. I mean, a must see. I know that they, they said that they're going to be distributing it. <laughs> In a small theatrical run, uh, video on demand, and then in the late summer, early fall, it's going to be available. Um, they didn't; they, he wasn't able to say what streaming service, but there's going to be. He said one of the larger streaming services, so, probably you know, Netflix. That, Netflix, Hulu, <laughs> Amazon, whatever. I know they partnered with AOL. Not LimeWire. Not LimeWire. That's going to do really well on Netflix. <laughs> um, one of the things. I know they're partnered with AOL in terms of the the distributions. I don't know if there's something that AOL is working into it or what, but. Um, Essential viewing for anybody of our generation. I mean, even if you're before or after it, it's just, it's amazing perspective. Um, listening to Sean Parker and Sean Fanning talk about it today, you know, in present day, um, Parker being the guy, the, the business guy, the, the, the guy that got the money, you know, most people know him from his involvement with like Facebook and 
Justin Timberlake, you know, portraying him in the yeah. social network. He's done so much. It's kind of scary. He, it, it's insane. He's worked with Spotify, with <clears throat> He's brought, Airtime, with... He uh, he brought Spotify to America, so, yeah. which is insane. He was the one that went to all of the record labels and basically convinced them to distribute license the it, music, yeah. license the music, which is strange because I remember... Uh, I remember when that, that first happened, when there was like a basically a sheet on the Spotify UK site, like it's coming, it might come to America. Let us know if you want it. This is what I remember it does. That. You remember that? Yeah. That was so weird. So I would, I would use the UK version. I, I did a VPN to use it, and it's, it's, it's an incredible service. But that, that we also talked about that. Alex also talked about the idea that like streaming it is kind of a weird thing too. Like it's, you know, people kind of don't get any profit from it essentially like in, in yeah. a lot of ways the, what you said about spotify with sean parker is like a really mm-hmm. important point because like he was like kind of the the money guy the business guy the guy that got it going but listening to sean fanning speak is just i mean it it, it kind of blew me away like yeah the entire movie he's so well spoken explaining what his vision was and whether you know you you say well was that initially your vision or was that the vision like when shit went bad you know and you were basically maybe backtracking because it all went to hell when Sean Parker used the word pirate it in an email, an yeah. inner office email, and, you know, basically was forced out of the company. But listening to Sean Fanning talk, like, he was the guy with the idea. He was the the software coach. He's the one that made Napster and, and put it out there initially. And the whole movie, you're just watching him, and he's, like, kind of looking off. You know what I mean? Like, you, yeah. you know those scenes like where he's kind of dazed. Like, he, as he's telling Alex Winter and, and, and us as an audience about this, you can see him recounting it all and just yeah. wondering... How did it? How did it not work? Did you notice you know? how many scenes he like teared up? They're they're like four or five scenes where he's like almost crying. He's genuinely a... just still confused. Like you can yeah. tell. Like <clears throat> I was reading a review. Like Max Weiss, one of the local, uh, she works for Baltimore Magazine here in Baltimore. Her review, the last line of her review, says something about, you know, you can't help but watch this and feel like Sean Sean Fanning feels like, uh, you know, how this I think she said like this digital horizon, uh, that should have belonged to him. You know, this whole thing he's talking about, like music and iTunes and and just how much music has changed now. And he's just like, I, I was at the I was at the front of this and, and it didn't work. Yeah. Like, how did it not work? It it was shocking. Like the last one of the last scenes of the movie is him. It's a close up of him on a couch with all the guys from the from the board of Napster. And they're talking and they're joking and they're all laughing because now they can look back and laugh and they're all millionaires still. And as is Sean Fanning. But he's just got his hand on his head, and he's just looking off. He's like, you can see him looking around the room, like, like he's doing math in his head or something. Like it, it, it's weird. It was. He's yeah. writing code, Steve. Did they tell code. you did the they next tell you great about revolution? The they cut out of the, the scenes, the talking no, scenes. No. Somebody from Apple. That oh, really? Used to work for. Oh, he's Mem- he's in some of the earlier scenes too. Yeah, I think. like apparently they had like there's a there's like a roundtable discussion. Yeah. And um, they're cutting him out of the scene. I don't I don't know the guy's name. But essentially, Apple said to him, "You can either be in this documentary, or you cannot be an Apple employee." Yeah, and he's like, that. "Okay, mm-hmm. I think I'll, I think I'll be, I think I'll still work for Apple." And there's some guys earlier in the movie that like worked for Apple after Napster, but no longer work for Apple. So mm-hmm. like they're all in. Yeah, they're it. all in it. It's but... just great. He is just so well versed in this subject. He's smart, like smart guy. He has. He said they had hundreds and hun- like over two hundreds of shot footage and over two hundred. I mean, hours of shot footage and 200 hours of archived footage from MTV and VH1 that they went through. 
it's just, I mean, it's an experience, man. I can't yeah. wait to see it again. I want my friends to see it. This, this was a great festival, so you're going to hear some great things. Yeah. But, yeah. but <laughs> Downloaded, I think I, I really took the most away from personally because, Same. like I said, I can relate so much to it. And my life is my life is music as, as an artist. My life is, is technology as what I work in. Mm-hmm. You know, and just watching a movie about both, it just, you know, it hit me. And it's just like, to, be a, to know that I was... I won't say I was a part of that revolution, but I had a part in it as a, as a social member. I think you were. You know, I mean, the fact that I know at one point I may have shared my hard drive with you through yeah. Napster or you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That that's what made Napster what it was. It yeah. went from hundreds of people to hundreds of millions of people using it. And I know I was one of them, and it was cool to you know just to see the back end of it and yeah. all these record executives talking and you know it's just some of it's laughable, some of it's really interesting, and and some of it's just just straight up entertaining. So yeah, uh, downloaded was was great. Downloaded. Coming soon. Yeah. See were, there, were there any audio issues at the screening of uh, Downloaded? <laughs> Not of Downloaded. <laughs> yeah. Not of Downloaded. I would have been, oh, God. Why did I ask that question? Why? What made I like me that ask segue. that question? Yeah. You're so smart, John. I know. I'm just trying to move things along. There were, there were some <laughs> audio issues in another movie. What movie was that, Ronald? V I'm, slash. Hold on. I'm writing this down. Spell it out for me. V slash. All right. H slash. Okay. S okay, wait. space. Okay, got it. Two. Two. VHS two, <gasps> I saw VHS one. There's a VHS two. Heck they yeah, did there it. Is. They, they did, did it. it. They didn't want to do like VHS comma TOO. You know, like a uh, like Teen Wolf two. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been so much better. It would have been. Oh, missed opportunity. But yeah, the, what we were referring to is the uh, about five minutes into the movie, and then for the next ten or fifteen minutes at least, the mm-hmm. the, the audio just completely dropped out, uh, or not completely dropped out, but it was the audio was like garbled and yeah it's what it sounded like to me was like one of the three or four channels was just completely gone because like the yeah. background noise and a lot of the sound effects was really clear it's like when you're listening to something on the headphones and you pull it out slightly yeah right <laughs> it's on one of the rings yeah. and you can hear background noise yeah, or if you've got one earbud in and you yeah. can only hear half the yeah it, half the stereo it, it sounded pretty terrible so that took away from the first yeah, oh. and it took me a minute the, the, the way the segment like these are anthology movies and the whole mm. the whole like the VHS movies are. And the whole premise is that they're found footage. And as mm. we said before about VHS, the first one, that uh, you know the short subject film is maybe a better use for found footage because mm. you don't have to justify the concept of filming for as long. Absolutely. Found footage on tape in HD, though. So yeah. Well, that no, that's not even... No sense if to... you go back to our episode, our previous episode about VHS, all the same problems existed right. be- as that in that sense. But this movie looked much better. This movie did, well, it was it did. an improvement in a lot of ways. Production-wise. But yeah, like so but it was into the first segment of it that the audio dropped out and I, or the audio problems began. And I remember... Not being able to tell, because it's a weird, like the premise of it is that a guy's got a camera in his eye, mm-hmm. and so you could believe that maybe they were doing some unusual audio tricks, but then after a few minutes you can just tell that you're missing dialogue. Yeah, I don't think we missed any particularly great dialogue, and I was still able to tell what was going on, but I can only imagine that uh, any of the people associated with the film that were in attendance were uh, were pretty frustrated with that. Um, what'd you think of VHS 2, Steve? Uh, well, I was very upset about the sound problems. I actually went outside and raised some hell. And then I sat at the back of the theater because that was the one speaker in the theater. We were that was wondering working. where you were. Yeah, because I was like walking around the theater trying to find a speaker that was working, and it was in the back left, so that's mm-hmm. where we sat. But um, sadly, the one filmmaker that was in attendance from the movie, uh, the one director, oh, was Edward Sanchez, 
Eduardo Sanchez? Yeah, Eduardo, Eduardo Sanchez. Sanchez. And uh, <laughs> his segment was almost completely ruined. But I mean, Absolutely. again, I won't say the, the segment was ruined. I just mean the audio was bad through, like, it was in the last minute of his that they got the audio back on. Yeah. I, it would be fair enough to say that it, I, I won't, yeah, it didn't ruin it, <laughs> but it ruined it. Yeah. Like, it soured the, it. A filmmaker is in the theater right. for a QA following this screening. And the sound goes out. It was out for like a good 20-some minutes. Yeah. yeah. And it was in the entirety of pretty much of his short in, in the film. And, I mean, I just can't believe it. It was absolutely ridiculous how it stayed out so long. But, I mean, that was standing. VHS 2 was a, a world of improvement for VH1, VHS 1, personally. Mm-hmm. I didn't hate VHS, the original. I did really like some of the segments. But as a whole, it was kind of like a, eh, I may watch it in passing. You know, I have it now that it's out. Just mm-hmm. as a... I like to just throw in a horror movie every once in a while and watch it. But as as a horror fan, there were things about VHS that even without really liking the overall effect of the movie that much, I could see myself watching it with a friend if I knew they hadn't seen it, just exactly. to kind of see what they think of That's it. That's exactly what I've done in the past year. I've watched it with a couple yeah. of people like that. I thought the VHS 2 was a lot better. Um, you know, the wraparound, the, you know, the idea is that... Um, the first few minutes of the wraparound were cool. Yeah. Once they got into that house... You're basically into the same, wrap but it was around. so unexplained. Like, uh, yeah, without, again, we don't want to, we don't even want to explain the plot well enough to spoil the plot of the wraparound. But there is a moment where a man finds his girlfriend seemingly dead and and covered with blood, and he looks over and like through his uh, his emotions, he sees that someone has written "watch" in blood on a VHS tape, and so he kind of goes like. Oh, all right, I guess Makes I'll sense. watch this. It's just yeah. like, like I can't imagine. I mean, I can't imagine at any point to a screenwriter, to a director, to a producer, to an actor, the emotional, Im- the content of that scene makes any sense. The yeah. notion of, oh, you just found someone dead. Uh, you care about her. You're very upset. Oh, a video. I'll watch this. <laughs> right. but, but also like the, the the person that they saw in the video that's that's like moving the story along. Yeah, that part was really what, underdeveloped. What is he? he he's, he's just talking. He's talking about these tapes that he's acquired yeah well we but, don't know if we missed something important early that is that right is, that oh is one yeah part that's early true. where we didn't yeah, understand we what he have, said yeah, but i don't know so. i don't think it would have made it made sense the <laughs> fact that there's something it, there's something that seems like it really should have killed a person and instead they are like they're now some kind of malevolent being because of yeah, it so yeah functioning but i think we all agreed and everyone seemed to agree that the best segment oh, yes. of vhs2 was the piece by gareth evans yeah, yeah. director and writer of uh raid redemption um called safe haven it's called safe haven and it was it was bonkers i thought <laughs> it it was one of those Bad movies shit crazy yeah. yeah it upped the ante every couple of minutes it got crazier and crazier and crazier and i realized that when i thought back on it it wasn't really even that it was that scary in the sort of slow build of tension way it was more just you were thrust into this scene and you were you were constantly figuring out what was going on in the scene and every time you sort of figure out where things are at yeah it would then take a turn and it just got bigger and crazier and that there's a there's a really kind of hokey effect in it that I really like. There's a sort of man in suit kind of moment, <laughs> but I thought it was so well done when that the entrance of that it character me was of so true blood for some reason was like, so you know in a way the way it was shot it was yeah. very you know the way yeah well no I for a second I have I don't watch True Blood I thought you said Natural Born Killers for some reason oh. that's where my brain went don't don't, don't ask why but I, there was something kind of dirty about the way that it was shot yeah. and the way yeah. it was put together it just felt like you you didn't want to be in that situation and it was actually kind of funny too Gareth Evans I mean I guess for whatever forever for whatever it's worth in this short um, he did what he does in pretty much every movie I've seen by him and. Some of them are not as good as the Raid Redemption, but he has, he's, seen, so. he's very good at developing characters very quickly, 
getting something about their personality out really quickly, like they're an asshole, they're really cool, they're funny, mm-hmm. very quickly, and kind of moving the story along. <clears throat> that is one of the best things you could possibly ever do in a short film about whatever this thing is developing into. It's a weird environment that they're coming into. Uh, it's like a, a commune. Whatever. It's like it's like you don't know what's going on. It's it's weird. They've heard rumors and they're trying to document the whole thing. And once they get inside, chaos ensues. Mm-hmm. Like uh, you know, it really. I love I love Ronald's chaos ensues. Yeah. We should we should have a little <laughs> sound that we yeah. just throw off every episode. <laughs> chaos ensues. Chaos. It's, but never never more appropriate than this. yeah. No, it this is really one. it really was one of those movies where you're like, what the fuck is going on? I mean, think about how. Think about the first twenty minutes of Raid Redemption, though, <laughs> yeah, and how yeah. bonkers that was. Yeah. So, like to me, this is like it definitely like I was excited. I didn't particularly care overall for VHS one, and I was excited primarily about VHS two because of Gareth Evans's mm-hmm. short, which I you know totally lived up to those expectations. Um, I did like in the Q and A afterwards. We also got some audio from that. Uh, Eduardo Sanchez. I liked what he said about uh, that. Uh, it was about fifty thousand. That they all had to make their movie. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody have any questions? Why don't you guys come and die? You know, he, uh, Jason, the guy who directed that, always gets that uh, question, and it was just—it uh, was actually his dog, his uh, his family dog, um, but he didn't really kill him. Man. <laughs> <laughs> He actually used like a, was it like an Ewok or was it an Alf doll? It was like an Alf doll to, to double the dog a lot of times, like to be the most dangerous. Was the camera actually attached to the dog? The camera was actually attached to the dog at first and then he realized that the dog wasn't doing what he wanted him to do. So he got the Alf doll. And then he started playing the dog with the Alf. You can, and you can kind of tell if you've seen it a couple of like many times that I've seen it. You can kind of tell when the Alf doll comes in because the ears are different, you know. But um, yeah, you know, as a first time viewer, it's a totally seamless. So we were kind of all producing them at the same time, so we would see like stuff, like pictures from Gareth, and we were like, "What the fuck is he doing?" <laughs> um, and then um, we didn't see it until they sent us like rough. Uh, edits, but we were all pretty much doing it at the same time, except the last one, the alien one. He did it later, like a, a month or two later. We, we actually, around this time last year, we were prepping ours. We shot it, I think, in June or something. Uh, but it was all kind of, you know, they, they all approved the scripts, and then we kind of went off and did them. And then later on, we started seeing everybody's films and, you know, comparing them and stuff. Jamie came up with the idea, and um, we were, uh, you know, it was going to be shot on GoPros, and uh, we had just shot a Bigfoot movie on GoPros, and we realized that the GoPros are really crappy. Um, and actually, Jason's the alien one at the end is all shot on GoPros, and at night it falls apart. I mean, it works for that movie, you know, because it's just the, the, the you know, the way, I think it really adds to the look of it. It looks, makes it look really cool. But um, we basically did it at day mostly because, you know, it was just the, the subject matter and also we realized that the, the GoPros, this was GoPro 2, this is before the, the new one came out. They were just, they just fell apart at night, so we just, we realized that and we tried to make it uh, daytime. But it was mostly just James' idea, you know, a guy riding his bike and then he, uh, you know, he runs into this little zombie apocalypse. No, we, I mean, it was, it was basically like 
trying to come up with this craziest, stupidest thing you can come up with. And, uh, you know, for, for me, it was like, you know, I, we did Blair Witch, and, you know, so we're kind of like the grandfathers of this whole thing. And for us, you know, all the, all the filmmakers are like, you know, 10, 15 years younger than, than I am. And so, so for, me, for me, it was the most important thing was just not, like, getting left behind, like not <laughs> making the shittiest segment in the, in the movie. <laughs> so I was like, okay, we're only going to do it if the idea is good. And, it's, and Jamie wrote this treatment, and he sent it to everybody. And it was, you know, I've, Greg and I, the co-director uh, of, of ours, uh, we fell in love with it immediately. And we were like, yeah, let's do it. You know, it was just a lot of fun. Probably, yeah, there's going to be a third one, but, and I'm, I don't think I'm involved now. They, um, their whole thing is that they make them really cheap, and like to make the movies, all the like all of us have to like call in favors and make a lot of people work for free, and we work for free, and you know, um, so uh, we probably wouldn't be able to do it again. So I think they kind of harp, they kind of get new filmmakers, and also just getting new energy and getting new ideas. And, you know, see where they take the third one. So, I think they gave everybody fifty thousand bucks, and then you see how much fifty thousand bucks buys you in Indonesia. <laughs> I mean, that, that movie would have cost like a million and a half dollars here. <laughs> anyway, thanks for coming out. I know it's late. And I know in so many, but you're talking about the budget. I mean, you look at that, and there's you know, there's no time that you you think that costs fifty thousand dollars. Yeah. It's like you're like you're trying to peg what's about to happen or what's going on or what exactly they're actually trying to uncover. You get the idea of what they're trying to uncover, but then you start to see these additional layers like kind of come off, and then you're like, well, maybe it's more than that, or maybe it's this. They're gonna do that, you know. You you start to kind of think about it. But really, nothing that you think is what happened. Yeah. You're not mentally prepared for it. It, it goes, it, I mean, yeah, it's awesome. And it and goes from being creepy to being funny to being disgusting. I mean, and there's there's a couple of, there's one scene in there with a, uh, a pregnant woman or a woman who seemingly was pregnant before what has happened to her that I just didn't, it's one of those situations where someone's going into a room and they're... You just are going. No, I don't want to. Don't <laughs> no, go in there. Who would ever go in there? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's don't. like th there is definitely the "don't go in there" kind of horror movie reaction, and then there's the "oh no, don't go in." There. What are you doing? Don't pull back the sheet. Yeah, don't look at yeah. what's under the sheet. You know, I, I thought that was really well played, and it, even the gross and kind of tense part of that was kind of funny because within a few minutes you can just tell, like I, I don't like what you were saying. I don't know what to expect from this, and so yeah, it, in that sense, genuinely surprising. Um, and actually, the plot of that—if someone had made a feature out of that plot, it would have been a good feature too. I, I mean, you know, they would have it. had to fill in more character stuff, but there was definitely enough story in oh, that totally. segment to be a, a feature. Totally. Yeah. He's a big fan of headshots. I've noticed that in all of his movies, he loves to see people get shot in the head. <laughs> so I don't know what it is. Like it's, but it it added. I thought you meant like headshots. Like he's a big fan of those eight by ten glossies <laughs> that actors send model out. model right, headshots. Yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> It's also really cool that like he chooses these odd, odd people to kind of focus on. All of his movies involve like a a very small man. Oh yeah, there's a character <laughs> named Father in this yeah. that's just great. I mean, talk about that. Some of the best comic moments come from yeah, from... egomaniac, yeah. super crazy. Yeah, I mean overall, Twitchy. I mean that that's the standout. We we've all agreed yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, the the Edward R. Sanchez is short. Is basically uh you know a guy's running through a park with a GoPro camera, 
on his on his head or his helmet or his hat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he basically runs into like a zombie apocalypse. And it's kind of a cool take because you know you kind of see him as a victim at first, and then he you know he kind of turns into a zombie. Well, it actually did something that I'm surprised more zombie movies haven't done with the glut of movies, which I guess we saw Warm Bodies uh, this year, but. You know, it did an interesting job of just the sort of... It used the found footage, the fact that we basically have someone turning into a zombie who has a camera attached to their head. We really got a sort of zombie's point of view of yeah, becoming a zombie yeah. and how people react to him then. That part was... I mean, I thought that, that there was some there was some cleverness to that segment for sure. Um, I really do wonder if maybe we missed some some funny character bits based on the fact that the, we weren't hearing any any dialogue. But uh, oh, I, I think we probably did. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, it was, I thought it was cool. I mean, it was kind of, uh, one of our coworkers from from our days at Apple. They he was in there as an yeah. extra, uh, Scott McCubbin. Yeah, Scott. And did you see him in it? I did. Scott, I, I, you didn't see him? Yeah, he was the only big bald guy with his entrails hanging out. <laughs> that was him. No, that that means Ronald doesn't know who we're talking about. No, right? no, he's no. like, what? Oh wait, oh that, that was him. Got it. it. It started off. The sound thing was so. Off-putting. Off-putting. That I didn't even think about that. I didn't even know what segment he was in, so I didn't think to, oh, look for Scott. Right, I was right. just like, I think we were all kind of boiling angry at that point where he was just like, oh. Well, I mean, with Scott, I when, I, when I met Scott and he was staggering around with his entrails hanging out, I thought, this guy really should get some acting work in a zombie <laughs> He's got to find somebody looking for yeah. a zombie. That's a look right. that really only works in one kind of movie. That makes sense. That was, Okay. Yeah, but that one is kind of fun. It's more, it's just, I guess, it's a f- more fun of the, the one of the more fun of the shorts. I would um, say it and the last one work in the sense that a short subject, you know there's a lower investment and you're just kind of there to enjoy the the, the jolts that they give you. And I think both those segments had, had moments. That last segment with the, uh, like the prankster kids. Yeah. I thought that had some really nice moments. That actually was my second favorite one. I mean, I actually really enjoyed that one. The reason I still think that Safe Haven was probably my favorite one is because it was just so out there. I mean, the one, yeah, we're talking about the last one. It's called Slumber Party Alien Abduction. And who directed that one? Uh, I think his name is Eisner. It's uh, That one was really good. Uh, let me look it up real quick. I have it. That's Jason probably my Eisner. second favorite. Yeah, Jason yeah, Eisner. definitely mine. There's a moment in that, there's a quick glimpse the, of something the lake, under the water. The lake, yeah. That I, I mean, the movie... Uh, it, Definitely, you know, every every horror movie maybe has an image that is the image of that movie. I would think that uh, in uh, Safe Haven, there's a moment where that we have a low angle of a guy who's got blood and snot dripping off his face, and there's yeah, something yeah. behind him. That moment, if you just take the still frame, it's like this That's describes yeah. how fucking crazy this movie <laughs> yeah. is. There's a moment under the water in uh, the last one that was the same way, that where I was like, okay, I, I enjoyed the little short, but that moment sort of stuck with me. Yeah, That one had the most heart, I feel like. It was like felt like Goonies a little bit. It did. Yeah. It yeah. Felt, did you ever see The Gate? Yeah. It felt like The yes. Gate in Goonies. You know, like, and yeah, it's just, you know, these, these brothers and their friends and their sister and a boyfriend, like they're at the yeah. house for the weekend, parents are gone, playing like fun pranks, really funny pranks on one another. Yeah. Audience was totally into it. And then you introduce this like figure in the water, you know, the kids jumping like, as soon as they come out of the lake though, they're okay. You're like, well, what was that? Yeah. You know, and things kind of, <laughs> well, it seems that we saw it chaos ensues afterwards. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's, yeah, I was just saying, it seems that we saw something that they didn't. Oh, totally. Yeah. That they that, had it, no the found footage movie. That's kind of hard to do, but they did a good enough job of that, that you really were going like, what the hell was that? Yeah. And actually for the rest of that, even, for the rest of that skit, that short, I was actually pretty freaked out by it. Yeah. Because I don't know, I, I'm really into like the whole, I don't know if it was the aliens or some sort of humanoid, whatever it was. Um, the way they had them coming out was so creepy to me because there would just be tons of darkness and like there was a lot of bright lights in this uh, in this short and a lot of loud like, boom, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like the War of the Worlds yeah. sounding things. 
and seeing them move like in like stop motion, like it would light up and you'd see them, yeah. and it would go dark, and and then it would light up and you'd see them in another position. Yeah, they'd be a little closer. Yeah. They'd be a little closer, or reaching out for the kid, and their hands had these like long nails. Very creepy stuff. Like yeah. I thought mm-hmm. it was really well done. I felt it absolutely reminded me of like the Goonie kind of thing, or and even more so the Gate, which I loved as a kid, um, which is pretty much about the same exact thing. Well, yeah, I mean the kids are being obnoxious, and then you realize they're just being kids. I mean a lot of times you see obnoxious kids in movies, and you're waiting to see well what's going to be their comeuppance, but then you realize that you're really just you're just supposed to see them as a fairly realistic depiction of a bunch of like looks like twelve to fourteen year olds having a slumber <laughs> party and the kind of shit they get into. I mean I found that really really just, believable. just a bad place at the wrong or wrong place at the wrong time. And that dog got some good footage, yeah. some good pranks. That dog got some- in fact, maybe the most poignant movie, if you want to hear the audience, like the sympathies of the audience were definitely with that dog. That's all I'll say. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's horrible. So I'd say if you're, an, if you're a horror fan, I mean, I feel, this, I feel the same way, but only more so about this than VHS 1. With VHS 1, I said, hey, if you're a horror fan, check it out. Mm-hmm. This, I, I, feel, feel, I feel like this, I would, I, would, I would show safe haven to almost any film buff that I know. Yes, right? yes. I, I feel a lot more confident and comfortable recommending this movie to friends, yeah. too. Yeah. Like, I felt very awkward because we all went last year. Ronna was with me with a lot of my friends, and, and like, no one liked it. My two no, friends, Lauren no. and Brian, that went with right. us last year that, that absolutely hated it and given like me shit all year. Brian wanted to punch the glass door that he we wanted left. To, Yeah, he, <laughs> he, he couldn't so get out of the theater <laughs> fast enough. And what, what made it worse <laughs> is that we watched the Q&A with Joe Swanberg last year, which made it even worse. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I've I've already recommended it to both of them, so hopefully they mm-hmm. see it. They probably won't. But point being, I think it's a lot more entertaining. I think this this the, the shorts are a lot stronger, especially like maybe, maybe I felt like the first one was probably the weakest for me. Yeah. The the eye camera thing. Yeah. But um, you know, I think with the zombie thing, a lot of people were into that. They would enjoy Eduardo Sanchez's bit and Safe Haven and and the Slumber Party Alien Deduction. I thought. The eye one awesome. felt like the movie The Eye with Jessica. That's all. Well, I mean, that's pretty much what it was. I think the yeah. first, I think the wraparound started to bug me, and then the first one just, I think when the audio went out, it took a while for me to kind of get back into it, but I think if had there been no audio problems, I probably would have been, my attitude would have been generally better from the word go, but I was just really glad that the audio was back in, sure. in full effect by the time the uh, Safe Haven section started. Yeah, because we, again, we were all praying for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The wraparound to me, like I don't, I just feel like I don't even pay attention to them. Yeah. Well, I, I like just the first like, one and this one, I feel like I, I acknowledge that they're there, and that's what a lot of people complain about. But, and I mean, the thing is that they kind of treat it. You know, they have a, a filmmaker that does it. I think Adam Wingard mm-hmm. did this, did the wraparound, and Wingard, and I just, I don't know, I just like I, they just, I did, I just tune out. Like well, the I, very opening, I thought was effective, and then when you yeah. see that we're getting footage, it's like a, it's a, he's yeah. like a private investigator or somebody who's who's being hired to get footage of things for people. And that was an interesting premise. And then they go into a creepy house and knowing that's a horror movie. And it's like, I was stoked at that moment. They get into that house and I was down with it. And then immediately, it's basically the same setup as the first movie. Yeah, absolutely. And it really lost a lot of my goodwill in that moment. And I started to think, oh, what am I doing watching this? I would rather... <laughs> well, you know, there's so many indie movies that aren't, that aren't uh, you know... That aren't this that I that I could have uh, gone to see at the festival, but I think that yeah, it definitely won me back over. And I think you're right. The general strength of the of the of the segments, it's like it's an anthology film. It's it's low. It's it's ninety minutes. It's yeah. It's it's it expects very little of you, and you'll definitely find something in it if you if you like horror. Yeah. A little. I want to give a shout out real quick. There's a short film online called Cargo. Mm-hmm. A lot of Eduardo Sanchez's uh, section, the the zombie through the park thing. Mm-hmm. It, there's a short film called Cargo that's online. Um, I think it's on Vimeo. Definitely check it out if you if you see this film and like his section or just for a kind of fresh take on a zombie film. Again, kind of told from the point of view of a zombie, um, but having to do with like a father who 
uh, is basically caught in the middle of it with a child and like he gets bit and he has to try to figure out what am I going to do to save my child even though I know I'm going to turn into a zombie. Oh, wow. And not to mm. give it away, but it's, you know, it's a really, really well-made short. Not to give it away, short. but he eats the kid. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it, John. <laughs> but really, really awesome short. And um, yeah, any zombie fans. But I'll you know, check it, that out. I watched Eduardo's piece and we'll, we'll throw some of his commentary. I thought he might have referenced this movie because apparently this short was out for a, for a while, for a little while. And this VHS2 was shot like in the last year, so I thought maybe they would talk about this. But um, it's called Cargo. Definitely check it out. It's, it's an awesome little short. Cool. Um, the next movie we saw, I, I saw um, I saw David Gordon Green's Prince oh, yeah. Avalanche. Um, I'm not going to talk a whole lot about it because I was the only one that saw it, and I didn't like it. Um, I found it very boring, very slow. Starring Emil Hirsch Emil, and Paul Rudd. Yeah, Emil Hirsch, Paul Rudd, and that's really it. There's a couple other characters that are, that show up in the film for a moment. Um, that uh, you know, one of the characters has a play in, in what's actually happening, but it's it's basically like a buddy not comedy, but a buddy comedy of, of guys that really aren't friends. Um, <laughs> that maybe they should become. I don't know. They're kind of forced into it. An enemy comedy, like Cyrus, yeah. like Cyrus was, where they like there's like a lot of arguing though. A little though. bit, yeah, exactly, yeah, and like you know, Paul. So is David Gordon Green just. I think he just does whatever the I don't think he just does whatever the hell he wants to do. Yeah. Like he he doesn't work. He works in and out of the system. You know, he like apparently shot this movie without really anybody knowing about it. He just like I, I remember like just reading about it. Like at, I don't know if it was Sundance or one of the film festivals. Like oh he has a new movie with Paul Rudd and Emil Hirsch. Yeah. And you think okay it's gonna probably be cool because it's it's smaller. It, it was shot for nothing and there's some cool there's some cool ideas in it in it that I thought work really well and there's some real there are some funny scenes. But overall I just it was it was. Uh, it is short, so that was good. It was like an hour and a half, hour and forty, but yeah, not my thing. Um, I think the attention it gets is because of because of him and uh, probably the parties involved with it. But I don't know. I, you guys may enjoy it. I just couldn't get into it. I just found it way too slow and not a whole lot of. Um, not you're a saying lot. you're saying it's kind of shitty, like those movies that we like. Yeah, yeah I'm saying like you know you guys like you like the shittier movies, so you might like this one. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just I, some of the things that you thought I felt like they were doing with it, or, or that it was going to go towards, especially with Paul Rudd's character. Um, you you do feel like he has a bit of an awakening throughout the film, and um, they've referenced like kind of where the title comes from later on in the movie, and that's that was kind of cool. And I liked seeing that bit of character development, but um, Emil Hirsch's character, I mean, it just felt like a lot of the comedy was forced, like the way the lines were delivered, and mm. it, it was trying to go for. It almost felt like it was trying to go for like to tap into some of that like Wes Anderson dialogue magic like yeah. how dry some of it is but it's like totally just it just comes right off the cuff you know and some of this film it didn't feel like it happened like that but they were trying to to, to do so to do that yeah, to do so yeah um i can see that i mean i think that, that that kind of quirky i mean i like wes anderson's movies but i think that he's a rare example of someone whose attention to detail is actually so great that even though you can view it as kind of like well this is sort of hipster or this is sort of quirky or whatever you can see the real sincerity behind it. And sure. again, the real artistic control behind it. I think imitating that sometimes kind of puts people at a real disadvantage because that, you you know, it takes the right actor and the right dialogue, everything for that kind of dry tone to, to really work. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a movie that a lot of critics probably will still like. I mean, because I think they usually kind of give him some love. Well, plus he's on the downturn of, because of Your Highness, right? So like, And, 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 the, and what, didn't he do The Sitter as well? 
He did that too? Didn't he do The Sitter? Two shitty movies. Yeah, The Sitter and Your Highness back to back. Two shitty movies. You are welcome. 22 and 26% on Rotten Tomatoes, respectively. Me. And Prince Avalanche currently has a 75, so it's one of his best reviewed films. So I'm I'm on the outskirts here. (laughs) I I wasn't into it. It wasn't That might be one review that liked it, you know? Yeah, it just wasn't my thing. But we'll see what comes out next from him. Um, but the, the the festival was capped off pretty well, I felt. Yeah. We were all three of us were able to get together for our last screening, um, to be a part of Willow Creek. Which I I would say I thought I loved the screening. I loved the experience of the yeah, screening. The experience I don't great. know that I think the movie was really that special, but I think that the the experience of watching it with this really uh, a welcoming crowd and it, it, I don't know, it was just a really good really good time. Um I I really do think the movie I mean, the, I feel like it feels like a horror movie made by somebody that doesn't watch a lot of horror movies. And so, therefore, there were certain things about it that seemed kind of derivative. Um, but, you know, written and directed by Bobcat Goldthwait. Uh, definitely some great Bobcat Goldthwait humor in that. Uh, definitely a few moments and a couple of daring things. I don't think it quite had the, 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 the twist or the... There was, you know, his movies all have something about them that is is really shocking or really kind of original. And this was the first time I've seen one of his where I thought, okay, this, this is this is good, but not, I don't know, just didn't didn't have that jolt, didn't have that shock, didn't have that but twist or that surprise that, mm. that that I really kind of wanted it to have. However, it it does a few things right in the sense that it's a found footage movie with just a couple of characters, and even though the male character was kind of kind of a, a, you know, you're not supposed to think he's the coolest guy in the world. You're supposed to see him as a little bit of a tool. Um, I thought the character development was actually pretty good in the sense that the characters didn't become just annoying and abrasive to me the way that so often in in found footage movies, you're so sick of the characters. I thought they did a good job of drawing out the tension. And there is one scene, 19-minute scene, that that I, if, if if the movie had gone someplace more interesting than it does at the end... I think it would have redeemed all the kind of slow burn, nothing much is happening aspect going into it. And that 19-minute scene set up the tension for the very end of the movie beautifully. I don't know that the movie really delivered uh, the whatever I was expecting. Um, I, you know, I, I hate to even say it, but I really wonder if Bobcat Goldthwait has seen Blair Witch Project. Because th- th- this <laughs> yeah. movie had a lot of moments that seemed like they were almost direct homages to Blair Witch Project, but I didn't see that as intentional because there didn't seem to be any point or any right. payoff to that. Awfully similar. Yeah, but but I I don't want to again. The best part about it was, you know, Bobcat Goldthwait did a great job of introing the film. Very funny. The Q and A was definitely the best Q and A I saw at this festival, yeah. if not one of the best Q and As I've ever been at. Ever. Such good natured crowd. So fun to be there. So much you felt like this is something that you, to be here for you. You have to be here now tonight to have have this experience. And I think to me that's what a that's what a film festival is all about. Yeah, yeah I pretty much agree with everything you said. I had a blast at the screening. Uh, I felt like the film was good. I think I liked it. Yeah. I think I had fun with it. With it, I think it just uh, wasn't a standout, wasn't special. It was very different for him. And I think that's probably what's more interesting about the movie is how different it is. And I think he makes a lot of different kinds of movies, even though they kind of all have, or with you know, with the exception of this one, have that twist or that that odd angle that you like think that you you've got to see this. Yeah, you think you have the movie or the type of movie pegged, but it's got this weird fucking piece that you're like, okay, that's why you need to see Bobcat's new film. Mm-hmm. I don't or, think- that, or that's why the description <laughs> needed to be vague and evasive because what happens in the middle is a legitimate surprise. Like, right, I think exactly. his movies are spoilable in that sense. Exactly. And I don't think anything really in, the, in Willow Creek does that. I mean, we didn't really even really address what it was about. Um, it's basically a found footage film about a couple that goes out to spend the night on the site of the 
Bigfoot. Uh, what is it? The Gimli footage? Uh, well, the, the famous Patterson film. Patterson, Patterson. Which I wanted to ask him afterwards if he knows that the people who made the film have since come forward and explained in detail how they faked it. But I, I can't. I didn't know. Whoa, that. really? Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't I know that, that either. I don't really know that much but about I, it. But at all, I don't but. know if that is itself a, a, a tale that's been. You know, I don't know if people believe that story. But I know a few years ago, though, you know, it wasn't like it was major news, but definitely some people came forward and sort of, mm. you know, demonstrated or explained how they how they faked it and everything. But given that. You know, that's a good setup for a horror film. It's a neat idea to say we're going to use, you know, we're going to go out and we're going to find Bigfoot. I mean, of course, now there's all those Bigfoot Hunter TV shows and stuff, um, which it seemed like it was kind of referring to that, too. But, yeah, uh, yeah some good character laughs. I thought the actress, um, what's her name? <coughs> Alexi, Alexis, what's it? What is it? Uh, I don't know. Hold on a second. She's attractive, though. I mean, she, and she <laughs> can act. mention that. She could act. I mean, that, that the, the 20 minute scene is. Pretty much what was the yeah that the is main, the real the like, centerpiece that, that, of that's the takeaway of like the, the 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 best part of the movie I think yeah. besides a couple standalone laughs but like John said I think it definitely is just a a stretched out version of some you know a lot of the scenes from the you know the Blair Witch Project you know <laughs> but um well, Lexi, I mean like. Alexi, uh, 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 John, still looking. Oh, the internet. You almost really... got sidetracked there. You started to con- mm-hmm. come, come, I was, uh, was going to jump in. Yeah, oh. with our. Oh, come on, internet. Don't be a puss. But anyway, I mean, basically, I just felt like the movie just. Alexi Gilmore. Uh, Gilmore, okay. Yes, Alexi Gilmore. I thought her acting in that extended scene was great. Like, the expressions on her face played out exactly the sort of mixture of comedy and horror that the that the movie was going for because there's legitimate fear, but there's also a sort of like, kind of like, what the fuck? I mean, I don't know. I thought she did a good job of playing that beat that it, it totally would have been. I mean, it would have gone up a couple of letter grades if, if whatever came at the end of the movie had been up to my expectations. Sure. You know, because like the, the right ending would have made all that waiting for the payoff worth it. Um, but definitely enjoyable. I was telling Ronald before you got here, Steve, I kind of felt like in a weird way, it almost didn't seem like a movie. It almost seemed like this is a, it's a it's a it's an experiment for Bobcat Goldthwait. It's a little bit of a of a cinematic prank of some sort, just to see like how far you can get people to wait. And it, it like it doesn't hurt my impression of him as a as a writer to think that if he's going to make a movie every year or so, right. it's okay if one of them is a little bit mild. You know what I mean? If it's if it's nothing great, I think that I think the key thing is that you can see that he's a guy who who and he even said it at the Q and A that he wants to make a lot of different kind sure, of movies. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. And so if this is just his kind of stab at a horror film, um, you know, it's on. It's just an unfortunate thing. I think it's dangerous to step into a genre that you that you don't know that much about. And I definitely, I definitely could see this as a as a you know, movie that could have benefited from a, a real horror fan coming in and saying, uh, yeah. you know, I'm not a big fan of like the the slow burn. It picks up in the end of the second act and then gets insane in the third act all the time. I mean, because I feel like a lot of those movies, like found footage movies, are like that. There's nothing happening in the first two acts, really, that have anything to do. Like, it's more about the exploration, and then it just gets weirder and weirder. Have you guys seen this poster for Willow Creek? I know, it's a great poster. (laughs) It's so fucking cool. I know. Oh, man, it's great. No, it is, and it really—if you saw that—I mean, that that poster makes you really wish that the movie had gone. I couldn't. Batshit. I did, I just saw it for the first time. That's and I I felt the same exact way. But an awesome screening. Seeing John Waters ask him questions about yeah. this movie was fucking oh man. Yeah, John so Waters cool. in the audience. Bobcat Goldthwait uh, apparently high on on pain medication because he had just the had Lawden. some just had some back surgery. Um, 
But you know, it's like you see these Q and A's, and it's 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 filmmakers mumbling into microphones, or it's audience members who don't really have questions, and they're just they just want to hear themselves talk in a crowd or something. Yeah. You, you know, like the. Uh, the, the one after VHS 2, people, like, it's very clear that Eduardo Sanchez directed one of four segments and that he wasn't one of the main producers of the movie. And and it was so funny that people kept asking questions like, was it hard to arrange the movie? Was it hard to orchestrate all the different filmmakers? Who made your credits? Every question they asked him was for someone who produced the whole movie, not yeah. a guy who did a segment. But the Bobcat Goldthwait Q&A, either it was because he was able to make it funny or people were just energized, but it was good. You know, it was it it really felt like... You know, uh, I mean, I, I don't I hope it wasn't just his star power that sort of made the audience really open to him. But you really felt like people were there to have a good night at the movies. And, you know, even though the movie was no great shakes, there were definitely some some good audience reactions to different things that happened in the movie. So yeah, he's got a, he has a really big presence in Baltimore. And I mean, you know, even outside of the film festival, he does stuff with the Maryland Film Festival like throughout the year with some of his films. So he definitely has a lot of fans. So, I mean, the audience there beyond the celebrity piece of it, I think are, they just like him and like his films too. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like the films that he's had here before, but definitely a really fun experience. I mean, what a great way to end the film festival. Yeah. And everyone who saw it seemed to have that same kind of feeling. You could just yeah. I mean, people. we all, I think we all had, uh, everybody had fun at the screening, whether or not you like could say you love the movie or not. It was, a, it was time well spent and it was good. It was a really good time. Yeah, um, so a lot of really good movies, you know, like the only thing I saw that I didn't like was Prince Avalanche and, and I saw five films. So one out of five was, was pretty awesome. And most of the films that we saw, we have some idea of the distribution plans coming up. I mean, um, even Prince Avalanche is, is, is having a release later this summer. Um, so if anyone's hearing background noise right now, some people just got home. Yeah, I was trying to, I was trying to yeah, talk over a little it. Stomping. Um, yeah, just everyone like we just start beating hey, on the table. Hey, you won't hey, be able hey, to hear hey, it hey. over. Um, but, uh, yeah, I would. Uh, is that is that's it? Those are all the movies that we saw. Yeah, it's that's all it, movies. Man. That's, that's what so yeah, unfortunately, I feel a little bad. If I'd had more time to come down to the festival, I would have definitely tried to check out more of like the experimental shorts and the documentary shorts. And because a lot of times those are things that you wouldn't know to hunt down. But at least I've got my handy program here, and I have a feeling a lot of those films are going to pop up. Yeah, you'll find online them. at some point. Yeah. That's one great thing about the way things are now is that film festivals are still the great place to be exposed to all this culture mm -hmm. and to kind of see, like Steve was saying, to see kind of fellow film buffs out and to feel that energy but the internet does make it very easy to find certain things that you again absolutely. might never have seen so. absolutely Definitely. and for it being you know it seems to getting bigger and better for being the 15th year i mean i can't wait till next year and hopefully next year Same. maybe we can mm -hmm. even cover it even more and, and be somebody has clearly involved. flushed the toilet upstairs nice. so we're getting some nice water <laughs> rushing down the pipe sound could be a part of our outro yeah right. <laughs> washing a, us a symbolic away. sound effect yeah washing us yeah. out of the uh recording we are the poop that you flush. But yeah, it was great times, and I'm glad that we could all go. But definitely, yeah. definitely check out the movies that we talked about. Like I said earlier in the podcast, um, mdfilmfest.com. If you're from Baltimore, from Maryland, from the D.C., Delmarva area, definitely hit them up. Um, they have the Friends of the Festival program where you can get involved and help support the film festival on an annual basis with contributions. And they give you know, screening passes out throughout the year. They host filmmaker screenings around the city. Anything, anybody local that listens to this, um, definitely worth checking out and seeing if how how you might be able to get involved um, in more of you know local films that are being made and even national films. Mm. Um, and also just to check out the site, they still have the festival program up there if you want to read some films that we didn't get to talk about. Yeah, um, tons of things like John said. We're gonna probably spend some time finding online on Netflix on whatever <laughs> over the next couple of months second flush apparently they went they, you know there's 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 a lot of bathroom going upstairs yeah. they just got home you know yeah, right. they, yeah. they, they were holding for a long car ride but yeah guys thanks so much for listening thanks 
you guys for going to the festival with us with me and Thank or you. with one another. It was a really good time. I had a lot of fun. You know, I had I had fun doing this tonight, guys. You guys want to get together next week and record another podcast where we Absolutely. talk about movies? We should do this again. Yeah. It was it was fun. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. It's good stuff. <laughs> definitely something I'd like to repeat. Absolutely. Well, yeah, thanks again, guys. Thanks a bunch for listening, and uh, you've made our day. Take care. As always. Bye.